Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the lost and found. The Bible has a lost and found, and Jesus gives us this lost and found in Luke chapter number 15. And in chapter number 15, we have several things in which have been lost. We saw the lost sheep, how that the shepherd left the ninety and nine to go find that one wayward sheep. And then we saw the lost coin, how that the lost silver, it showed how that the woman lost the piece of silver. And we told you that had very, very great importance, symbolism for this woman. And she searched the house, she swept and stirred until she finally found the silver. And then Jesus brings it even closer to home. And with each one, each successive parable, He gets closer and closer to the heart of what He's meaning here as He shares with the scribes and Pharisees. And so when He comes to the last one, it's not a sheep, which is one out of a hundred. It's not a piece of silver, which is one out of ten. It is a son, which is one out of two. More and more greater is that which is lost. And so Jesus tells us about these two sons. And last week, we, we broke apart of this, this last parable into three parts. We wanted to look at, first of all, a lustful or a licentious son. He's the one that went into the far country. We talked about the depths of sin uh, that this young man and how depraved and wicked he was, how he had no relationship with the Father, how he hated the Father, he hated the family constraints, and he wanted to go away. He goes to the far country. And now, we want to focus in on the second character in this last parable. We want to look at a loving father. So the sons were lost. We had the licentious or the lustful son. And now we want to see a loving father. I'm going to read the entire parable again. We're going to, stopping at verse number 24. We're going to pick up reading in verse number 11. So Luke 15 and verse number 11. And he said, meaning Jesus, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of, your hired, one of thy hired servants. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. That's where we ended our passage last. We're going to pick up halfway through verse number 20 and look at the father. Look at what it says. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, 
Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The loving father. You know, there's no song that to me personally captivates the love of God more than Frederick Liam's song written in 1917 called The Love of God. Now in these three brief stanzas of that song, I think the final stanza is the one that gives such an, a beautiful portrait of how immense, how grand the love of God is. Lehman, when he was writing this, uh, this hymn, when he came to the third verse, he remembered a story that he had heard from an evangelist he had recently attended a meeting to see and hear preach. And, and the evangelist told the story of how that he had recently seen in the, on the walls of an insane asylum this particular piece of poetry scrawled on the wall of a madman who had actually been taken and carried away to his death. So evidently this inmate in the sane asylum uh, wrote these lines to comfort himself in the moments of his sanity. Listen to what he wrote. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. This madman was saying if the ocean was filled with ink and every one of us were to take a pen and write on the sky the immenseness of the sky could not hold the grandeur of the love of God towards sinful man. And I, man, there's just something about that last stanza that really for me just captivates all that is the love of God. But if there is ever a place in the Bible where the love of God for sinful man is depicted in its grandeur and beauty, it has to be in these verses, in verse 20 through 24. In the Word of God, God uses 119 words in the English language to put on vivid display the depths of His lavish love towards sinful man. In what is arguably the greatest parable ever written in the English language, we not only see the depths of sinfulness that this young man goes to, we see the height, the glorious height of God's love which flows towards sinful man like a raging river of grace and mercy. And it is directed towards every single one of us. You remember the story from last week? I gave you a little bit of insight before we started, but we see this young man, you remember he goes to the far, far country, 
and he wastes all, he sells the inheritance short. He says, I hate you, I don't want any part of this family. He takes the money, goes to a far country, and spends it all and has a great time doing it. He runs out of money, that's his fault. But a famine hits, and he goes into starvation. That is not his fault, but that's the way life goes many times. And so, here's this young man, he's in the hog pen, the good Jewish boy, doing that which would turn his stomach. He's sitting in the hog pen and he's about to dip his mouth into the slop which the hogs are eating. And he thinks to himself of the goodness of his father. How that his father, he lavishes his goodness on the lowest of slaves. Not the ones that he has to take care of and keep on the ponderosa so to speak. But those, those hired servants that he has no obligation to. He just picks them up in the morning and puts them back at night. He has no obligation and yet they are nowhere near as needy as this very son in a foreign country. So he says, he came to his, comes to his right mind. He says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of my father. You know, that may be well where you are today. Or where someone listening to, to, this, to this message may be today. You're in a far country. You're, 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 you've come to the end of yourself. You've come to a moment in, in which you are sick and tired of the sin, sick and tired of, of the depravity, of the wickedness, of the, of the rebellion against God and where it places you, the emptiness of rebellion against God. And you think to yourself, I wonder if I were to turn to that heavenly Father would he receive me? Maybe they're considering how, how well, do you think God could forgive someone like me? Listen, I want you to understand that these few verses that we look at and focus in today gives us every indication that the mercy and the forgiveness of God are endless, endless in its love, endless in its possibilities. Endless in its wonder. Every person. And, and listen here. The truth of the matter is. Most of us we know the Lord. They were out here this morning. And we know the Lord as our Savior. Here. I want us to see how good God has been to us from the inception. If God never did anything else for you. That would be pleasurable. That would be comforting. That would be encouraging in this life. What He did when He came and found us and clothed us and shod us and gave us the gift of the kiss of His presence, His embrace, His welcome, His forgiveness, far exceed that which we would experience ever in this lifetime. And so I want us to look at it from three vantage points or, or three, three aspects in which we see this Father his actions in this represent God. First of all, I want you to see a shameful reception. A shameful reception. Of course, in verse number 20, it says that he came to his father. But look at what it says. It picks up and he says, And when he, the father, or he, the, the son, was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You know, for the most part, as, now remember, we got to put this in the context. What is Jesus doing? He is responding to the accusation 
of the scribes and Pharisees that said this, why do you have such ones as, as prostitutes and publicans? Why do you surround yourself with them and make merry with them and rejoice over, over them and be around them? Why are you doing it? Jesus is responding to that. He did that with the sheep. He did that with the silver. Now He does that with the sons. And so, as the scribes and Pharisees are listening to this story, as Jesus tells it for the very first time, they're not like you. They, you, you know the end of the story. You know what's going to happen. But they're hanging on every word of Jesus. And as He's telling it, I can imagine that they're, they're upset when the Son came and asked for everything. And they're, they're a little upset about the Father when He should have he smacked His Son. He should have put Him in His place. But the Father just willing, gave Him everything. I'm sure they, they tissed. Oh, they didn't like that at all. They, they didn't like that at all. But then when the Son went to the far country, I'm sure that the Pharisees, as the story progressed, went, oh yeah. Yeah, that's what He gets for disrespecting the Father. That's, that's what should happen to Him. That young man should be in the hog pen. He got what he deserved and, and now he's going to make his way back to the Father and throw himself on the mercies of the Father. I'm sure that the Pharisees are like, oh man, this is going to be good. He's going to come back and eat all kind of crow. I, I mean, this, this is what they love. They're going to they're think about how that this young man, he's going to come back and see how he can work his way back into the Father's good graces. Now, when it comes to Pharisaic theology, that's just the way it is done. You work back into goodness. You work back into favor. And your truth be known, that's the way it is with every religion in the world. Outside of Christianity, that's how it's done. How many offerings? How many pilgrimages? How many prayers? How many trips to Mecca? How many, how many offerings? How many uh, rituals you can do? How many Hail Marys? How many candles you can light? It has to do with works being making us acceptable before divinity. He'll endure the humiliating humiliation of return. The pain of hard labor for years until he can work to be reconciled with his father. That's what they're expecting. Oh, let's hear it, Jesus. Come on, tell us what this father's going to do to that son. Oh, man. Listen, when Jesus tells what this father did, if the Pharisees were standing on anything, they would have fell off of it. <laughs> because what he tells them is beyond all of their sensibilities. What this father does and Jesus depicts is beyond anything that they could comprehend a real father could do. Notice first of all, in this parable, I want you to see as we see a shameful reception, I want you to see the search he exhibited, this father. It says that when he, the son, was a great way off, his father saw him. Notice the father was searching for the return of the son. He was always looking. He had his eyes on the horizon watching for his son to come back. Why? Why was he looking for this son? Now I want to put before you an idea as to why 
culturally, he would look for this son. Now, you remember when the son left, right? He sold it all. Probably, probably spent a little bit of that cash to get him some new threads. He's high on the hog. He's got, uh, got some new threads. He's got probably a new ride. He's got him a, a nice horse, and he's, he's heading out of town. And he tips his hat to the, to the townspeople and the father and says, So long, suckers. I'll see you later. He heads out of town with a bag full of money, looking good, smiles all over face. He's going to have a good time in a Gentile land. You guys can stay here and live under those Live under those constraints. Not me, pal. I'm going to a far country. And so he left with his head held high. And he's heading out. And now for him to return, what does he look like now? He looks like a hobo. Or, or, or he's, got, he's got filthy garments. He probably sold the nice threads to buy a meal or two. So he don't have those anymore. He's barely got canvas over him. He's got mud stains and hog pin stains all over his clothing. He look, They're probably torn. He's probably filthy from his work. And here he comes, head held low, making his way toward that town. I can imagine he is just, oh my word, this is going to be so embarrassing. When, I, when he walks back oh, through the town, I can imagine he's thinking to himself, this is going to be awful. So why was the father looking? Because in order to save his son, the embarrassment and the public ridicule of walking through the village to get to the father, the father wants to save him the humiliation. The father is looking for his son to save him from shame and scorn. Because you can imagine, as he, if he walked through town with all that filth, why, I bet they'd throw tomatoes at him. Uh, they'd laugh at him. Look, they'd probably spit at him as he walks down the middle of the town. They'd probably make fun of him. Oh yeah, big man now. Look at you coming back high on the hog. No, no, no. Uh, they, they, they would have ridiculed him. And so the father says, I want to look for him. I want to find him. And I'm going to run to him and save him the humiliation. You know, truth be known, that's been every one of us. Oh, I don't care if you, I don't care if you haven't spent night after night in the belly of a bar room drinking yourself into oblivion or a needle in your arm. The truth be known, all of us have sinners have been in the far country. We've been exiled from the Father. And when we start to come to Him in repentance, we should be the laughing stock. We should be the ridiculed ones. We were in the far country. Uh, that we, in places we promised ourselves we'd never go. I want you to know that your heavenly Father had eyes on steadfast on the horizon. He was looking for you today. Listen, if you're here and you're lost, Jesus is looking for you. His eyes are on the horizon. The heavenly Father is searching for that lost son. Notice, second of all, not only the search that he had, he's looking for the horizon to beat him before he comes into the village. I want you to see the shame he endured. Look at what it says. And when he was a great way off, the Father saw him. Notice this: had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Notice, I want to focus in on that running part. Now. In normal circumstances in that culture, 
this is how it should have played out. The son, as he made his way through the town, on his way back to the father, whether it was directly through the city or somewhere else, someone would have seen him and he would have become a laughingstock. He would have been mocked. He would have been ridiculed. But he would have finally made it to the father's house. He would have knocked on the door. I'm sure that Butler Jeeves would open the door. It's a wealthy father. Open the door, one of the servants, and say, Uh-huh, it's you. And you'd say, and, and the, 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 the lost, uh, the, the, the wayward son would then ask to see the father. And the servant might say something, Well, I don't know if he's available right now. You just have to wait. Slam the door in his face. And then he would wait. Part of the humiliation, part of the sentence of what he had to do was he would have to wait on the father. The father's unavailable. You're going to have to wait. And he would wait, and he would wait there on the front porch, waiting and waiting for the father to come. Then later on, many hours later, the father would come, and it would be a very cool reception. You know what I'm talking about? Cool, cold reception. He would have been very austere, head high, looking down at his son, who would no doubt be on his knees before his father. At this cool reception, the son might throw himself at the father's feet and kiss the father's feet while he stood there and looked and, and uh, lamb-blasted and tongue-lashed his son for what he had done to the family. The father then would outline the conditions of the son's restoration. You know, he squandered all the inheritance that the father had given him. He's going to have to pay that back. He's going to have to make that up. And so the father would say, you know, you're going to spend 10 years as a servant to earn back, earn back that money that you had spent and, and wasted away and threw away. You're going to have to come back and you're going to have to make that money back before you are reinstated or in fellowship with this family. What work would be done in order to prove genuine repentance of that son? That was all ironed out. That's what was expected. But that's not what happens in Jesus' story. Culturally, that's what should have happened. But in Jesus' story, that's what not, does not happen. The father sees the son and he runs to the son. Now, you have to culturally understand how unbelievable this is. This father running to the son. People in the Middle East don't run. <laughs> People in Bible days don't run, especially older men. Especially older men of wealth, they don't run. The word run here though, the word run here is a technical word which means the kind of running that is done in an Olympic stadium. Alright? This is not a shuffle. <laughs> this is not a trot. This is a dead sprint as fast as he can go to his father, to his son. He is running as fast as he possibly can. It's an all-out dead sprint, and this itself is completely humiliating. Listen to this. Kenneth Bailey, he made a study of life in the Middle East and this is what he said, had to say about this. One of the main reasons Middle, Eastern, Middle Easterners 
of rank do not run is that traditionally they have worn long robes. You know, you, you, you do it as well. Anytime you think of particularly an old man in the Bible, they usually have a long robe all the way down to the ground. That would be no different. You're thinking right. Long flowing robe all the way down to the ground. The reason Middle Eastern men of some standing do not run is because in order to do so, they have to raise up that long robe in order to run down, you know, run without tripping over the robe. Well, in Middle Eastern culture, it is humiliating for an old man to show his legs. And I say amen to that. <laughs> when I put shorts on, my kids say, Dad, stop. It's all, oh gosh, please, just cover them legs. It's old man legs, knobby knees, skinny legs. Uh, I heard a man say years ago, uh, he was preaching against wearing shorts, men wearing shorts, and he'd say, you old man look like, look like a watermelon on two, on two toothpicks. Uh, that, that's what you look like. Uh, that's what this old man would look like. He would pull his, to pull that garment up and to reveal his legs was the ultimate embarrassment to this Middle Eastern man. And so clearly... In order for this man to run like that, he would have to do what? Pull that up and run through the town in the middle of everybody with his legs showing so everybody could see him. Now, here's the thing. The town has been... Maybe they see him coming over the hill. Oh, look at him now. Here he comes. They got their tomatoes. They got their rotten food and... They got their dead cats they're going to throw at him as he comes through, the, comes through the town. And as he makes his way in, they're getting ready to do it. And all of a sudden, here comes this streaking old man with his, with, his, with his robe pulled up, running through the town. Where is their attention drawn to? It's drawn away from the humiliation of the son, brought to the humiliation of that father. You see, even more aghast than seeing this son, this rebellious son coming back, they are aghast at this old man which is doing something that is completely out of character and completely embarrassing for him to do. What is the father doing? He is taking the shame from the son and putting it on himself. Think about it now. He's taken the shame that should rightly be given to that son. That son should have to walk through that town and endure the embarrassment of his rebellion and his hatred. But what do we see? The father takes the shame on himself. That is exactly what God, through His Son Jesus, did for us on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Laid, was nailed naked to a tree, embarrassed, humiliated, scoffed and spat upon, a crown of thorns mockingly placed on his brow, a, a, a scepter of, of branches put in his hand, smacked around, nailed to a tree. He took the embarrassment that should have been mine. I should stay guilty before the eternal white throne judgment of God. I should stay embarrassed for eternity in the torments of hell because of my sin. 
But Jesus bore my humiliation. Jesus took my sin. Jesus took the humiliation that should have been mine. Here we see Calvary. And what Jesus endured for us. The search He exhibited, the shame He endured. Finally, the sentiment He expressed. Look at verse 20 again. And He saw Him and had compassion and ran and fell on His neck and kissed Him. Notice the sentiment. The sentiment of the Father was that of deep compassion. You saw that in verse number 20. The word compassion here. This word compassion we get from the word spleen. You might know where your spleen is. It's kind of kind of inside, inside, deep inside. It's a little, little organ of the body, very important one. And the spleen, back in Bible times, they would consider the spleen like the seat of the emotions. The very you ever you ever been so emotionally overcome that it that it makes you sick? Uh, maybe an unexpected situation comes and you, you double over, almost getting nauseated and sick. And it's not a virus or a bacteria, but it's an emotional response. It is a doubling over. It is a deep felt compassion. That is the word used for this father. The father seeing the son is not satisfied to say, well, look you who's coming in the town. It's not glee that says, yeah, now payback's a rough boy. Why don't you come in and kind of tell me what you're experiencing in the far country? No, it's not it at all. He had compassion. A deep compassion for what he saw. My God, when God looked at me in my sin, when I came to him, he had every reason. Yeah, blasphemer, drunkard, fornicator. Hi, come on. Tell me all about it. Let me hear your confession. Yeah, you did. No, it's not. He had a compassion, a love for this. Like, the, like that shepherd had a love for the one lost sheep. Like that bride had a love for that coin, to find that coin. Here, the Father has a love and compassion upon this wayward and wayward son. And notice when he gets to him, he embraces the son. I can I always kind of picture the Bible, and I can imagine this son walking toward the father, and the father running to him and nearly tackling him with his just burying his arms around and see them crumple to the ground together as he embraces his son. He holds his son. He embraces his son. This father takes on the shame. And he embraces his son. He throws his arms around him, burying his head and into the neck of his son. Notice what he says. He said he ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. This father, in his embrace, he had long been searching silently with his eyes fixed on the horizon for his wayward baby son to come back, waiting and waiting. And finally he sees him and he kisses, he throws his arms around him and kisses and kisses his son, his filthy, stinking... Can you imagine how this young man smelled? He'd been working in the hog pen. He'd been traveling for no doubt miles and miles in the heat of days and the cold of nights. No doubt he stunk to high heaven. The father said, Woo! Woo! Listen, okay, I'm glad you're back. It's all right. 
Why don't you get a shower? Why don't you clean up a little bit before I touch you and, and get close to you? Why, why, don't you, why don't you brush up a little bit and take a dip in the river and get cleaned up? That's not the Father. It's not the Father. You don't have to clean up. You're listening to me out there. You don't have to clean up. You can come to the Father just as you are and there'll be no less compassion. There'll be no less love. He'll still bury His face in your neck and kiss you with the kisses of with those kisses, a gesture of acceptance, friendship, love, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation. Instantly, in that moment the Father encounters the Son, there is reconciliation. They are together. They are bound together now. With all this sentiment expressed by the Father, there was not one word of explanation. Did you hear the Son say one thing? Before he was embraced, he was kissed, he was brought in reconciliation and closeness with not one word. Not one word. Listen, I I think this, this parable exhibits for us how anxious and ready God is to receive the vilest of sinners. Think about the lowest of low whether they be in your sphere of influence, your family, your, uh, your, your community, those that are way out on the far end of, of vileness and, 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 and reversal, that, that which is against God's Word. God is so anxious to receive them that He will run to the embarrassment of Himself on the cross of Calvary, that He will embrace them in reconciliation and the price being paid on Calvary's cross to embrace them. He is more anxious to embrace them than we are actually to come to Him. And notice, notice the Son's speech. Look at verse 21. And the Son said unto Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in Thy sight and I'm no more worthy to be called Thy Son. Here's an admission. I'm not worthy. I have sinned. If we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, remember that? If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just. Confession of sin was part of this. But I want you to compare it. Go back to verse 18 and 19. Go back to verse 18 and 19. Look at what it says. Here's the son. He's rehearsing what he'll say in 18 19. I will arise, go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. We got that in these verses. And, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. We got that down here. And yeah, he said that. And then he goes on to say, Make me as one of thy hired servants. He didn't say that to the father. The father wouldn't let him say that. You know why? Because your works won't be a part of it. Your works won't be a part. You could not repay. The reconciliation was instantaneous. That is grace. That is not works. This young man made his way in repentance to the Father, admitted his wrong, but with no works to make up the debt, the Father has reconciled instantly to him. That is grace, God's grace. He bore the humiliation. He endured the ridicule. He paid the price. He suffered the shame so that the Son could be received instantly. Instantly. The Son is made right with the Father without any testimony of works. The shameful 
reception. This was utterly shameful to those scribes and Pharisees. They would have been aghast at what this father had done and had shamed himself. Now notice also, look at the sudden restoration. Verse 22. The father said to the servants, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. A sudden restoration. Because of the grace of the father, the wayward child is not placed as a hired servant, nor did he become a slave. But was not, he was not put on probation. He was not held at arm's length. But astonishing, astonishingly, he was restored to being a full son of the Father. Notice, first of all, we see the apparel given. He calls for a robe and a ring. From here, the Father calls the servants and says, Bring the best robe. Now, the word literally means the first rank garment. Now, this would be part of their culture. In every household of, of certain degree of status, the, the elder father, the one, the patriarch of the whole patriarch of the family, would have a first-rank garment. It was the most beautiful garment in the house. And it was reserved to be worn only on special occasions. It, it belonged to the father. It was the father's robe brought to cover the rags of his sinful son. Think of that picture now. The rag, the son come in stinking filthy rags. The father takes his best robe and puts it on. I was thinking about this the other day. I can imagine this father, he's walking his son now. His son has got the most beautiful garment in the household. And the father is walking him through the town. The town that wanted to throw tomatoes and dead cats at him. The, the town that wanted to spit on him and humiliate him. Now he comes into town with the robe of the father. There isn't anybody who's going to throw a tomato at the father's first rank garment on his son. They're not going to do it. They're going to be reserved. They're going to stand back. They're not going to throw one thing at this young man, there's not one accusation that they could bring. I tell you what, that is justification. Isn't that what justification does? We come in our rags of filth and unrighteousness and we give those to God. We Our unrighteousness and we take on His righteousness that is put upon us as a garment covering our sin, disposing of our condemned condition before God. It becomes a covering. That's what this peril is. Then he ordered a ring. This ring was the one with the family seal. How many of you know anything about a king or a royal signet? Oftentimes they would, they would have the, a well, like a golden ring with a signet on the top. And that signet would be used on royal documents. Anything, they put hot wax on something and it had the official family seal. Letters would be, have the, anything approved or, or, or done by the father or the, the wealthy landowner would have that signet ring. Here, he takes the ring and puts it on his son. I mean, that, that's like uh, giving the son access uh, to all the family's wealth. It's like giving him the family credit card. You know, it's always scary when you take and give your kid the credit card when they go, you know, they're, they're young, they don't have no money. You give them the credit card to go, that's kind of scary situation. That's what this was. It was to give the, 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 the wealth of the family was at his 
disposal. He had authority over all the family owned. The Bible says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. When we come as filthy, pagan, Gentile wretches and bow before the feet of Jesus and receive his forgiveness of sin, guess what? We become full-fledged members of the family of God. We are grafted in as an old wild olive, blind, blind, uh, olive vine. We are put into the family and all of its standing in all of its places. I was a Gentile dog. I shouldn't have anything to do with the covenant promises of Abraham. But in Jesus Christ, as a Gentile dog, I become a son, a son of the King. Ladies, you become daughters of the King of glory. We become parts of the family of God. Full-fledged members. The servants were then commanded to bring shoes on his feet. Hired men went barefoot. Servants went barefoot. Only masters and sons wore sandals. This is, again, full, immediate restoration of this filthy, wretched, wayward son. No probation. No, no waiting to see how long it will last. No, no held at arm's length. Immediate. Instantaneously be part of the family of God. That is salvation in Jesus Christ instantaneously a part of the family of God. I can imagine the scribes and Pharisees would have been scratching their head at this point. Does this father not care about anything about his own honor? And that's the thing the, fri the scribes and the Pharisees could not understand. Again, this is all about sinners around the table with Jesus, the Son of God. Why? Why? Why would they be would, would this man of God surround himself with such vile sinners? Don't he care? Doesn't he care about his honor? Doesn't this father care about his honor? God reckons honor differently than man does. Because God's honor is found in his, he derives his honor and glory from the love the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness upon those which least deserve it. That's why the Father is glorious. That's why the Father is the most important character in this whole performance, this whole parable. It's because it is all about Him and His grace and His mercy. He extends it to the undeserving sinner. This boy had nothing, nothing to offer but his repentance, his humiliation, his surrender to the Father. What does the song say? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is salvation. It's not a work. It's not a prayer. It is a heartfelt relinquish to what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. A clinging to what Jesus has done for us. He became, he came believing in the mercy and compassion of His Father and found reconciliation. Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, 
but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Did you hear that? Not he that worketh, not he that worketh, but believeth, because his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice, not only apparel given, but the appointment granted. In giving his son this sudden restoration, he has instantly appointed him the highest status in the home. In giving his son the robe, the ring, the shoes, he has raised his level on the family to that which superseded the son. The, the, the eldest son. The eldest son was the one that's supposed to wear the garment. The eldest son, the inheritor of the estate, was supposed to wear the ring. But the father sets all that aside and gives it to the son. The first garment was to be worn by the son at his wedding. The elder son was to wear the ring. And without hesitation, given to the, given to the repentant son. Full-blown sonship at its highest level. He has authority. He has responsibility. He has respect. Now one might say, easily say, wait a minute. Even to our 21st sensibilities, come on. Isn't this unfair? I mean, the elder son has been with the father working the whole time. We're going to get into that next week. But the elder son's been hanging around. He hadn't left. He hadn't, he hadn't thrown away the inheritance of the father. How is that fair that all of a sudden the one that did all this, how is it fair that he gets all of the, the standing in the family? He was the one in the wrong. Listen to me. Listen to me. It's not fair. You know what? It isn't fair. It's not fair. It isn't fair. It all, well, it, uh, the truth of the matter, it's not fair, but it all belongs to the Father, and He may do with it what He wills. It's not fair that the Muslim can observe the restrictive life of devout morality, of, of all of the, uh, all of the, Devout morality, the prayers, the, 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 the journeys to Mecca, all of, the, all of the strict morality of a Muslim. He can live it his whole life long. And when he closes his eyes in death, he falls off into hell for all of eternity. That's not fair when compared to the drunk on the street who's wasted his life in alcohol and with his last breath calls out in repentance and faith on Jesus and is suddenly snatched out of hell and placed into heaven all because of His last ditch reach unto the Father. It's not fair. It's not fair. But that is grace. That's what grace is. It's not fair. It'll never be fair. It'll never be fair. What God did for you is not fair. And it's worth worshiping Him and glorying Him and loving Him for all of eternity. It's not fair what God did for me. But that is what God delights in. He delights in mercy. He delights in forgiveness. He delights grace triumphs over sin. Romans 5.20 Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Not every sinner reaches the depths of sin that this young man did. But when sinner 
sinners do come to God, grace still triumphs. I don't care if you were saved when you were 5 or 55 or 105. It doesn't matter. It is all of God's grace. Last point. A shameful reception, a sudden restoration, a stunning recognition. Look at verse 23. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. When the prodigal son begins to make his way to the family home through the village, he does so under the arm of the father, fully clothed, a deserving son. As a matter of fact, when he took him through the village, you probably couldn't tell that he had just come from the far country. Couldn't tell of the life of sin he'd led. You know, that reminds me of a lot of Christians sitting in pews today. Why, you can't tell what they used to be at all. God has changed them. He changed their tongue and their mouth and the way they speak. He changed their heart to make them sensitive to the things of God. He changed their dress. He changed the, what, they, what their priorities are in life. Why, you can't tell the rottenness of them. Why, if you could peer into my life and what I was, as particularly in the past and how I failed God even since then, why you'd boot me out of this pulpit as fast as you could. But God's grace, God's righteousness that covers and changes us all, changes our hearts. Here, you, you couldn't tell that this son had been in the far country. And if what the father had done thus far was enough to send the sensibilities of scribes and Pharisees reeling, what he does next is absolutely stunning. Notice the extravagant feast in verse 23. He calls for the fatted calf. This family was obviously wealthy. For a wealthy family, this is what was done. A special calf was set aside by the family. It was fed. The, the wording in this parable suggests it was grain fed. It was fed properly. It was given a specific, specific diet for it to be very uh, digestible and desirable meat to eat for this calf. It was, it was always given the... This was prime grain-fed veal is what we're talking about here. Such an animal will be kept for a monumental event such as a marriage of the elder son, a visiting dignitary, or some event that called for a massive feast. To this father, that's what this was. Now nobody else in the community thought so. Everybody else thought this was a time to laugh and deride and, 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 and make fun of this young man and exile him. But the father's sensibility is, let's have a party. Let's have a celebration. And, and let's have, a, let's have a, a celebration, a monumental celebration. This was the biggest event that has ever happened in the history of this family or the village from the father's perspective. From the villagers' perspective, they didn't see it that way. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees are here. Listen to me. The scribes and Pharisees looking at that boy, they didn't see a reason to celebrate. But that don't matter because the Father sees them and sees a reason to celebrate. That's why in the, the two previous parables, what did it say in the end? Likewise, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that, repentance, that repents. Heaven rejoices. The world might tisk. And the world might look down upon it, but heaven rejoices. And that's what he said. The Father wants to throw a celebration. And that is the joy in heaven over one repentant sinner. An extravagant feast also 
an exalted father. Verse number 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make him bear. This celebration was not really about the son. The whole village knows the whole story. They know what this son did. He made a public spectacle of himself leaving town. Everybody knows what this kid did. But to the father, he doesn't see it that way. He sees it as a son reclaimed from the dead. This celebration is not about the son. It's about the father. The father is dictating this celebration. I mean, everybody at the party, the only reason they're there, it's not because of the son. It's because of the father. The father's the one throwing the party. They'll come because there's free food. How many of you ever been there? Yeah, I'll come because there's free food. But the reality is, this celebration wouldn't happen without the father. The son, uh, the, the son was dead. Verse 24, the father even considered him dead. They held a funeral, but now his son is alive. Who gave this son life again? He didn't earn it. No, the father gave him life. The father gave him standing. The father gave him permission, uh, a position. The father gave him reconciliation. The father embraced him so that there could be a celebration. The son was lost who made him found. Who ran to him and hugged him and kissed him and clothed him and made him a son again. It's not about the son and what the son did. It's about the father. It's about the father. The feast. What, who, what is the feast exalt? It exalts the father's wealth. It exalts the Father's mercy. It exalts the Father's grace and the restoration of His Son. The Son now has new life, new status, and for the first time now, He has a relationship with the Father. You'd be hard-pressed to ever find this Son again considering to go back into that far country. Why? This Father's been too good to me. <laughs> Isn't that what we need to think about as saved children of God? This Father's been too good to me. He's been too kind to me. He's received me into the family again. I'll never go to that far country again. I'll put it behind me. Here we see the exalted Father. The shame of reception. The sudden restoration. And a stunning reconciliation. If you're here today lost in your sin... Your heavenly Father will greet you with no less mercy, no less grace, no less reconciliation than what we have witnessed in this very parable. To finish here, Jesus said in John 6, 37, listen to what He said, Him that cometh to Me, I will in no wise cast out. Him that cometh to Me, I will in no wise cast out. No matter how filthy your rags are, no matter how depraved your past has been, no matter how far into the far country you've been, anyone that comes to Jesus will be embraced, will be received. In that, even in that moment of death, you know, I've thought about you know, so many people that are, that are dealing with, with death. Death has affected even our own church. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful and thankful for that even in moments of finality, the, you know, God's grace is never greater than when he, when he reaches down and saves a person on their deathbed. They truly have no life. No rest, their life is over. Nothing left to give. 
God is never so merciful and gracious as to when He is called upon in those final hours. Here we see this from this son. God lavishes extravagant love every, on every repentant sinner. There is mercy and grace with God such as will clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that will embrace us in acceptance and full forgiveness such that will bestow on us the tender kiss of reconciliation and sonship. The ocean of God's loving kindness waits to cleanse you and your sin and make you a son or daughter of God. And if that is already indeed the case, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's so wonderful to think about that moment of initial embrace and how you're part of that family and would never think of leaving that family, departing from such goodness as the Father has given to us. Jesus bore our guilt and shame on the cross. He paid the price of the life that we had squandered away in rebellion to God. Jesus paid our sin debt on the cross. Leave the far country and come to Jesus today. His eyes are fixed on the horizon. And that is true for every one of our family members and not right with God. His eyes are fixed on the horizon for all those that would call upon Him, would come to Him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet.